0: In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours, when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter
1: 20.
0: Welcome, Sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. As you know, we recently celebrated the milestone of our 10th anniversary. And I hope you're well aware of another excellent, long-running horror storytelling podcast, Tales to Terrify. They're celebrating a special milestone of their own, their 500th episode. And it's an event so big that it's spilled over into two episodes— On August 20th and 27th, they'll release episodes 499 and 500, each in honour of the milestone. I encourage you to celebrate with them and listen in. You might even hear a familiar voice on one of the episodes, he said, winking. Tales to Terrify. There's a link in the show notes, or find them wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of things well worth listening to... Our very own maestro of malevolent music, Brandon Boone, has released his latest album. It's titled Neon Classica, and it features tracks from many of the stories we've done here on the podcast. Brandon's music is always outstanding, and his albums are great to put on and immerse yourself in when you want to sink into the sound. There's a link in the show notes, or find it on your favorite music streaming platform today. Neon Classica. By Brandon Boone. Now, as I recently mentioned, Joanna and I are convinced that our mysterious adventure is close to an end. We feel that way because we're seeing more and more that the books and the letters are morphing from the printed words into audible sounds. Maybe that's why last week's hint of words no longer matter holds so much weight. I mean, go back 500 odd years or so, and we had good old Gutenberg inventing the printing press, which revolutionized how we communicate. But these days, the ability to communicate via audio has allowed us to amplify our signal, so to speak. Not just radio waves being broadcast across the airwaves, but now over the internet and beyond. Why, our podcast alone reaches millions of people across the planet, all originating from a single point in Canada. And so, as the mysterious message or signal continues to get amplified via the podcast, there must be a limit to how far it can go. Maybe that's why the end is close, because the signal grows weaker the farther out it spreads. Like standing by the water and yelling across the lake, the water allows the sound to travel farther and be heard on the distant shore. Perhaps we are the proverbial water across which the sound is traveling. It might be an apt analogy, because Joanna shared with me an old journal she found in the Whispering Pages. It's an old waterlogged book, washed up on a forgotten shore. She says the name Martin Fisher is barely legible on its cover. We asked some of the team to perform the words therein, including Atticus Jackson, Matthew Bradford, Graham Rowett, Dan Zapula, Kyle Akers, David Alt, and Erica Sanderson. So, if you want to hear the message as the sound spreads out across the waves, you should come to the sea.
2: June 20th. When I was a young boy, no older than the age of eight. My mother drowned in the ocean off the harbor of Cobb's End. She was not a perfect mother, known to make many mistakes, and many of them were with me. She married an abusive man, raised me in squalor. Days would go by where I would not see her until well into the midnight hour. She was not perfect, but she was mine. One last gift she gave me before I witnessed her suicide was a song. A short melody. Still to this day, I wonder why she gave it to me. Was she trying to inspire me? Cheer me up? Or was it just the creation of a woman who had finally fallen off the ledge of sanity? I can still hear her voice now. Even so many years later...
1: Brave young sailor, do you wish to be free? Then pull up your bootstraps and come to the sea. Is your life in the god or a life you wish you could flee? Then pull up your bootstraps and come to the sea.
2: This morning, that song of the years of being absent from my mind came back with a striking fury fueled by the ocean water which smashed into the ship's port side. Nausea had long since danced across my bowels, causing an uneasiness in my body. I pulled myself up from my bed. My legs trembled under the weight. Tumbling against the walls like a babe in its first few days of being on foot, I swayed with the current outside. I slammed against the door leading into the nearby bathroom, the wood splintering from my weight. Stealing myself from the door, I opened it, and not a moment passed before my head dived into the toilet bowl. Dinner had finally come up. A healthy serving of spiced rum, a whole bottle. We were adrift for three days before the captain had decided he would rather take his chances swimming home than remain on the ship any longer. As he leapt from the stern of the ship, his body collided into the sea with a thunderous clap. As he swam off north, my crewmates and I swore he would always be remembered. I have since forgotten his name. We have been sailing aimlessly now for eight days. Well, I believe it to be eight days. I tried keeping count by leaving marks on the wood next to my bed, but a piece of dead tree had splintered and collapsed in my hand three nights ago. I had finally pulled myself from the ball. Looking into the mirror, even through the cracks, I could see my beard had grown to an unruly size. This in only the span of a few days. Out here, on the pale blue, days felt like months. It had not been months, though. I am sure of that, at least. I nearly jumped at the sound, making its ominous return to my brain. I thought that it must have been my mental state escaping me. As a sailor, I've spent much of my life at sea, and because of that, I know the impact such a life can have on the body. Even then, I know especially well the impact it can have on the mind. I knew far too many men who would fall apart on their travels. We were not all built for such a life, and I honestly am starting to believe that neither was I. I had been prescribed medicine long before I went on this voyage, yet even after taking them daily, these sounds have found their way into my mind. After the time spent at sea, my supply was running low, and was likely the only thing keeping a layer of sanity over my view of the world. The same could not be said for my crewmates. As I ascended onto the main deck, I was immediately assaulted by the foul stench of rot and decay. It was a smell I had grown more accustomed to as the days passed, but even now it still causes my stomach to churn. As more of the crews started dropping dead from hunger, dehydration, or their own self-harm, we decided to keep the freshest ones for food. The problem was the bodies tended to spoil, leaving the cabin boy Neil to throw them overboard with the rest into the great blue below us.
3: The Oliver's gone rotten.
2: Neil tossed the body of a man whom we had shared many dinners with into the sea. Always was rotten. Now he just looks how he is. I was doing my best to keep spirits up. The body that was once Oliver smacked into the waves, quickly sinking to the depths below. We have no food. Patience... Where's Lewis? Neil pointed to the port bow. I can make out the tall figure of Lewis as he was looking off into the distance. The man was well over six feet tall, but his body had become sickly, lacking the definition it had at the start of our voyage. Lewis was second in command when the captain was still around, taking the reins after the man had gone for one last swim. Lewis had a strong and motivational command over the crew for a time, but starvation and heat caused all spirits to drain. That is what months adrift does to a man. I mean, days. Did I write months? I stood next to the man I would caution to say was a friend. He did not turn to look at me but I could feel his acknowledgment, as if his soul reached out to touch mine. We stood together in silence for what seemed like an eternity, and it damn well might have been one. No gulls. What's that? He moved his finger to the sky, hanging over the horizon. The sky was empty of anything living, only the bright sun and blue color of the heavens. Look. Not a
4: goddamn single
2: seagull today.
4: Did you see any yesterday? Lewis.
2: When was yesterday? He looked back to the horizon and sighed. His stomach made an audible groan. <sighs> no gulls. No dead men, no provisions. All we have is liquor. That's not so bad. We can drink ourselves dead. I don't want to die. I looked back up to his face and could see clouds of anger pass by. They formed a giant storm over him. Well, what do you propose we do then? We have no seagulls, no fish. And no new dead men to nibble on. We can't just kill one of ours. Can't we?
4: Alert the crew that we're having a meeting tonight in the Hull kitchen.
2: Aye. I must confess, as I am writing this all down, picking the meat from my teeth, a strong feeling of regret and anger has taken over. Is it anger at Louis, myself, the whole damn situation we have found ourselves in? Of that I am not sure. I do know that I regret what I took part in tonight. An act that has undoubtedly turned God away from ever lending help to us. I would go to church every single day for the remainder of my life if it meant we could go home if it meant that I could forgive myself for all of this. Once night came, I went below deck into the kitchen to find the rest of the crew already waiting for me. We had started our voyage over 30 strong, but now found ourselves whittled down to a weakening six. The other three who remained were newcomers to the ship, The few torches placed around the room caused a brilliant shine in their eyes. One was a man named Henshaw, a strong name for an even stronger man. The captain brought him aboard believing we needed more muscle to handle the rougher seas. The other two were Jackson and Curry, two men that I suspected had a deeper relationship than just friendship, but I had no evidence on the matter. They kept to themselves most of the time and sought comfort in each other while the world fell apart around us. Jackson's curly hair bounced in the winds when he was above deck, while Curry's bald head was kept safe under a sweat-stained cap. Henshaw broke the silence. Why are we here? Lewis looked at us with a solemn face. Filled with the regret for the decision that must be made. Lewis?
4: We have to eat. We have no food, but we have to eat. There's nothing for us to catch. No more provisions in the back quarters. All we have is liquor and each other. Liquor can help ease our pain, but it doesn't fix the hunger that's always there knocking in the back of our stomachs.
2: As such, we have to make a choice. Lewis placed an empty bottle, my empty bottle of rum, onto the table.
4: Whoever this bottle lands on when I spin it, will make a donation to the crew. Donation? We'll need to take a part of them to eat. Not all of someone, mind you. We can last longer that way. A hand here, a foot's worth of toes there, just enough to keep us fed. One hand between the six of us could mean we wouldn't really need to eat for another day or so.
0: No.
3: This is completely insane.
4: Look outside. You look out there and tell me if any of this is sane in any way. How long have we been out here? Do you remember? What about you, Curry? Because I don't. I don't remember the last time I saw land. I don't know what day of the week it is, or even what month it is.
2: It's June.
4: No. It's November. Whenever it is. We need to do something to keep us going. We have to eat. He's right. Lewis, we do not have to do this. I've seen
5: things swimming out there at night. Fish rising out of the deep to shine in the moon.
0: Some even look like women.
2: We all looked at the cabin boy with utter confusion. (laughs) Mermaids. Fairy tales from the little boy. Piss off. Neil tried to leap at Henshaw, but I had already put my arms around the boy. We were at a boiling point and I refused to let it tip over. Get
4: in a circle. I won't entertain this any longer. This must be done.
2: Once we gathered around the table, Lewis spun the empty bottle. The sound of glass gliding across wood became a droning sound of impending danger. I could see every man break out into a sweat as the bottle would slowly pass them by. I will not lie and tell you I felt no fear in that moment. I knew the pain that would befall me, and it filled me with terror not felt since I saw my mother drown. That fear that I could do nothing to change what was happening. And that soon, someone would pay for that. The bottle slowly crawled to a stop. The droning hum came to an end, like the sound of a life cut short. The bottle pointed at the cabin boy. Neil began to back away. Terror filled his eyes as the men fell on him. Inchal snatched the boy up, slamming him onto the table. What should we take?
3: A leg. The boy has good, strong
4: legs. No. He'll be useless on the ship without it. His hand. We'll take his hand. Get your hands off of me! Boy! Boy! Don't forget that you'll be fed, too. Make peace that this pain will bring you food to heal your ailing stomach. No!
2: Lewis pointed at me.
4: You, grab a knife and hand me a
2: torch. We have to
4: cauterize the
2: wound. Following his command, I felt lead in my shoes as I went towards a nearby drawer. I pulled out the shiniest knife we had, hopeful it would make the cleanest cut. Guilt moved through me. I did not want this. But it had to be done. God damn it. It had to be done. I handed Curry the torch and Lewis the knife. Jackson was holding onto Neil's left hand cut it. Lewis placed the knife over Neil's hand. The blade rested directly above his wrist. I am sorry, boy. Once the blade began to cut and Scarlet drops of blood pit-pattered onto the wooden kitchen floor, ah! Neil let out a blood-curdling scream. I have tried my best to block out the rest of what we had done to the boy, but I can still hear his screams. Even now, as I drink a new bottle of rum and wash the taste of human flesh from my mouth, I can still hear that scream. My eyes grow heavy now, and I must get some rest. I have taken my nightly dosage of medicine. Downed with the best rum on the ship. With a belly full of food. I hope that tomorrow our luck will change. I hope that Neil can still look at us as humans. I do not think I can. June 21st. I saw her in my dreams. The ghastly, pale, bloated body of my mother came to me in my sleep last night. In the dream, I found myself on that same beach I saw her drown in as a child. I was still a grown man, but I felt so small as I watched the corpse that was once my mother rise from the ocean. She broke through the layer of water and seaweed, standing atop the waves. Her lips that were once so red were a dark blue standing out from her paper-white skin. The dress she wore that day was completely soaked through, a muted pink that was dangerously approaching the same scarlet drops of blood that came from Neal's wound last night. After a few moments, her mouth finally parted and what she said sent a cold shiver up my spine as her words echoed across the ocean.
1: Oh, brave young sailor, do you wish to be free? Then pull up your bootstraps and come to the sea.
2: She did not sing it as I remembered, but simply spoke the words. She had taken her own self-made shanty and turned it into a haunting prose. Against my own control, my legs began to move. The chilled water splashed against my bare feet. I was not standing above the water as my mother did, but was slowly descending below the ocean waves. Soon I was up to my neck. My breathing was a panicked cry of help. The same cries my mother let out as she drowned. Water filled my mouth finding its way into my lungs. I sank like a rusted anchor, and the spirit that was my mother did nothing but watch as I had done to her. The dream left a pit in my stomach once I awoke. As I had done every morning prior, I vomited up the rum that had filled my stomach the night before. Looking into the bowl of my toilet, I saw chunks of Neil's thumb. That nightmarish vision will stick with me forever. I discovered the rest of my medicine were gone. I have no idea where they have gone to. When I took my dosage last night, I could see at least another week's worth remained. That was last night, right? I need my medicine. I start to get bad thoughts without them. Opening the door to my cabin, I found Lewis waiting for me. Sweat fell from his face and played along his clear expression of anger.
4: Neil is gone. Gone? Curry tells me he heard the lad leave his quarters in the middle of the night. He'd gone above deck and never came back down. We think he jumped.
2: I must confess, even now as I write this well into the night, the thought of why Neil would jump is not lost on me. We had done something truly awful, and Lewis had promised we would continue to do that awful thing to each other until we found a way home. Like I have, Neil must have surmised that such a task was impossible. Instead of putting himself through that torture... He jumped into the sea. I hope he found those mermaids. When Lewis and I went on deck, Curry and Jackson were looking into the ocean.
3: He's down there. We should be too. Don't say that. We can still make it. We have time now, thanks to Lewis. I feel terrible about what we did to that boy, and I refuse to take part in it again. I would rather be
2: dead. The two continued to argue as Lewis went portside to look at the horizon. Still nothing. I resigned myself to looking to the sea as well. Given how things were, it was just about the only entertaining thing to watch. I believe I was only there for an hour at most. Lost in thought about the dream I had. Lost in regret over what had happened to our cabin boy. Yet when I looked up from the ocean, I found it to be well into the night. I looked around the ship's deck to discover that I was alone. Even now, thinking back on all of this, I struggled to comprehend how this happened. I do not remember so much time passing. I do not remember seeing that blazing sun finally set. I do not even remember my crewmates saying a word the entire time. I leaned against the wood railing to collect my thoughts, to find some balance for my mental state. It was then that I heard a voice rise from the waters behind me. Down, down. It sounded vaguely human, but like a throat filled with scales. This is why I need my medicine. Things that are not there begin to appear. Down, down. They speak to me and tell me to do things I do not want to do. Yet the voice persisted. Down, down. The voice had a familiarity to it. It reminded me of Neil. Thinking it was the poor boy, I had to look. I feared that he had simply fallen over the night before and spent the whole day clinging to the side of the ship. I looked down to find a shining, brilliant collection of scales atop the ocean layer. They glittered in the moonlight. Colors I have never seen before, nor that I can properly recollect, would bounce from each scale. Then... Some of them began to move away from each other. The mass of hard skin parted to reveal none other than the face of the cabin boy. His face glistened in the moonlight. Patches of scales formed over his face. Neil? Into the sea. I went into the I sea. And I am forever changed. I am changed. I feel so much better. I feel so much Look. Look, Look, at at head. Head. Look at my hand. Look at my head. His voice was altered. Changed like his body. He lifted his left arm out of the water. And to my shock, I could see five fleshy digits on a newly formed hand. I can free you,
0: we can free you, your mother is down here with us.
2: My mother?
5: Is your life in the gutter,
4: the life you wish you could free?
2: Neil's voice changed, morphed into something more feminine until it had fully transformed into the voice of my long-dead mother.
1: Then pull up your bootstraps and come to the sea. It
2: was then that the powerful odor hit me. I still struggle to find what it was. The best I can say is it reminded me of the final hours of a fish market in the summer. The smell of ocean and rot. I do not know why the smell drew me closer when I should have been repelled by its stench. Yet I found myself reaching my arm down to kneel. His left hand extended out, farther than any normal man's hand could go. A wicked grin passed his face, but I could not stop myself. The awful odor drew me further in. Just as our hands began to touch, A large pike of wood smashed across Neil's face. I fell to the floor of the ship, having lost my balance, and looked up to see Henshaw carrying the wood. It had splintered and snapped against Neil's face. Are you stupid? It was then that a monstrous cry shouted out from the ocean. I pulled myself back up and looked over the edge. It was Neo. Or at least what I once thought was Neil. The smell was gone and somehow my vision became clearer. The scales had lifted from the Neo-thing's face to reveal loose flesh. The skin dangled from the body. The mouth bounced in a comical fashion as the thing began to move. It pulled itself above the water, standing on top of the floating mass of scales. The body was a translucent white. The skin of the creature was constantly moist and slippery. I once saw a dolphin leaping from the waves. And while I never actually touched it, the skin of the creature looked like it would be a perfect match. Lewis, Curry and Jackson joined us on the deck. They nearly leapt away from the edge after seeing the monster standing above the waves. The thing still wore Neil's face. A mask hiding what I'm sure was an even more horrific visage. Blood. A brilliant green glow of liquid dropped down from one of Neil's eye holes. What
4: the fuck is that thing?
2: Neil's mermaid. The voice was a mockery. My mother, Mia, countless other unknown people smashed together into a horrific opera. The creature crouched down on its two very human-like legs. The hands, made of similar wet skin, and far longer than our own, dangled to the floor of scales. We observed the beast for a moment before it suddenly leapt towards us. It was at level with the ship, and with a quick grab from its hands, pulled Hinshaw down with it. I would like to say we all reached out to save the man from his awful fate. I would like to say that Hinshaw was not pulled below the ocean screaming for help while we watched in horror i cannot say these things the creatures stayed below the ocean out of view i felt my legs give out all the energy was sapped from my body i felt a searing pain in my head a throbbing that resembled cannon fire touching the creature had left a mark on me not physically But in my mind, I was fractured. No medicine, no salvation, no hope. I could hear Curry crying while Jackson vomited over the edge of the boat. Footsteps overcame their noise, booming steps of a man who had given up. I looked up, doing my best not to pull away from the pain in my head to see Lewis walking around the ship. Over and over he crossed the hole, taking laps one at a time. This is hell. I could hear him say those same words again and again as his pacing walk became a sprint, dashing across the wood. Hopelessness had finally overtaken him. Something then caressed my face, a gentle touch I had not experienced since I was a boy. I looked up to see my mother standing over me. She was no longer bloated and pale as I had seen in my dream, but a beautiful, vibrant young woman. She pulled me up from the ground and began to lead me below deck. I do not believe the others saw her. Now I am in my cabin, and she is singing to me. The song is so faint I can barely hear it. The words in this moment do not matter. What does matter is I can hear her voice. The gentle tone of it is slowly pulling me to slumber. I know her being here is impossible that it makes no logical sense yet everything I have gone through has refused logic just as strongly this is something I needed now I will rest
1: and in the morning I will life life you wish you could
2: June, I have stopped writing the days down, as I cannot keep lying to myself that these days have been happening as I believe them to be. I do not remember the year either, so I have scrubbed it from these journal entries. These things, days, months, years are just ways of telling time. And I have learned out here that time has no construct. It does not exist. I would like to say that the previous entry happened yesterday. That I have not completely lost track of the world. But I I am no longer sure it did. I know it happened. I know it did. I just do not know when. I have... no more medicine. All I can think of now... is what Lewis said last night. This... is hell. Perhaps he was right. Perhaps we are trapped in a hell that has found its way onto our world of existence. Yet, I am not even sure we are in our realm anymore.
1: Do you wish to be free?
2: As far as I remember, the proclamation Lewis made that night were the last words I ever heard him say. I have not seen him since his cabin door is locked and try as I might I do not have the strength to break it open I heard no noise from his room nor protests when I attempted to break the lock I believe our new captain is now dead Curry is gone as well as Jackson told it Curry had gotten up from their cod in the middle of the night and made his way into the kitchen. Once Jackson came to investigate a few moments later, he found the man had slit his own throat. I weep for the man as I knew the grief he had felt in his final moments. He was a compassionate man before all of this. I need my medicine. Jackson is alive, but he is not himself anymore. Curry's death broke him and has morphed him into a monster that could only be birthed from this situation. You see, when I came across him and he told me what happened to Curry, he was eating the body. He licked at the blood which had once poured out of Curry's neck, but had now become crusted. The body's fingers were chewed down. I say Jackson became a monster, but I mean purely that he has fallen into insanity. Or perhaps he is doing the sanest thing, keeping himself fed. I no longer know. Morals are gone when you are damned. Come to think of it, I do believe his body was changing. His eyes seemed different. His mouth a constant grin, and his hands were the claws of a hungry beast. I can still hear him eating in the kitchen. Oh, God. I can still hear the sound of flesh ripping off the bone. It is a wet sound. My mother has been with me as I write this all down. She has been singing that lovely song since I opened my eyes. And I feel a strong compulsion to leave this place. I mocked the idea that the ocean out there could offer any sort of freedom. But now I see. Perhaps. I can just swim. And swim and swim and swim and swim my way to land. Some way. Anyway. To escape this ship that has morphed into a nightmare. Will I wake up in heaven, or will I wake up back where this all started? I feel myself repeating a strong sense of deja vu. Have I lived through all of this before? I have no realm. Mother tells me that I can see her soon if I go. I want to see her. See her how she used to be. This is hell. I still hear the Neil thing out there. Mermaid. Siren. It beckons for me. It wants me. Mother says it wants to help. I believe her. She is my mother after all. Come to the sea. Come to the seat. Come to the It bumps the against seat. the hull of the ship, tapping its hands against the walls of my cabin. I am leaving this place. I will tear these last pages out of my journal and place them in a bottle. I will let them float out into the ocean. I do not wish for my store to be seen for, if it is, that means someone else is experiencing what I have. Please, understand. If you are reading this, I am truly sorry. You have found your way into this abyssal nightmare. I will pray for you. We both will, mother and me. If you want to escape, go into the water. Mother says it will hurt at first, but then you will find peace. Come to the sea, I beg of you. We must go now. Goodbye, fellow traveler. May we meet in a place far better than this. Together, in the sea. Oh, brave young sailor, do you wish to be free? Then pull up your bootstraps and come to the sea your life in the gutter a life you wish you could flee then pull up your bootstraps and come to the sea
0: When you're a teenager, finding your first job can be a valuable experience and a chance to earn some spending money. But when a job is needed just to help support your family, there is far more pressure involved. And in this tale, shared with us by author A.T. Thomas, a woman recounts the experiences of a local teen who worked in a restaurant where his shifts kept him working late into the night, all alone. Performing this tale is Aaron Lillis. So wash up those pots and pans. Take pride in your work. Just make sure you avoid whatever is in the pipe work.
6: Did you hear what happened to the Atwood boy? The Atwood boy. The Atwood boy. Oh, fuss, yes, you do. You do know the Atwood boy. Missy's little urchin... He went around with everybody thinking him slow, but it turned out he was just a little deaf. Yes, yes, the Atwood boy. He turned 15 just a few months back. and On the poor lad's birthday, his lousy stepfather ran out on his mother and the boys. Took their savings with him, too. We always knew that, Harold. That's her previous husband was a bad egg. Seems Missy has picked up quite the habit of taking home rotten men. Well, the boy, he had no choice. He had to go out and get a job. He'd be no good in the army, the mines for that matter, not with those ears. What a liability he would be. So tucked up and out of choices, he inquired at the restaurant across from the shop. Yeah, that's right, Tony's. Italian place. Nice grub, or so I hear. Never been in there myself. I don't really care for ethnic food. Anyway, they put him to work. He was a little too young to be in the kitchen. Couldn't risk the health inspector popping around and finding a sprout in the kitchen, you know. As it turned out, though, he was just a little too useless as well. They put him behind the bar, but he dropped all the bottles. They tried to set him up as a waiter, but he kept spilling soup on the customers. So they had no choice. The boy just wasn't up to the job. They had to let him go. But they couldn't do it, you see. When Tony went to go fire him, the boy starts blubbering, saying how badly he needed the job, how his family, his mother especially, were relying on him, how his no-good stepfather had disappeared with what little money they had. Well, they took pity on the boy, of course, who wouldn't? Missy and her lot have had it pretty rough these last few years, ever since her husband died. Rotten though he might have been. So they made him a pot wash. At least the boy couldn't poison anyone down there or spill a hundred dollar bottle of champagne all over the waitresses. Uh, from what I've seen of the place, it's very similar to the shop, just much Bigger. The dining room is on the ground floor, then the kitchen is down in the basement with all the sinks right down in the back. The Atwood boy told me they load all the dishes round there all through service day and night. Then, after closing time, he'll go in and scrub away. Takes him all night. They weren't happy about it, or so he told me, leaving him down there on his own in the basement. They knew all about his clumsy habits and were half certain that he'd somehow burn the building down or, at the very least, flood the place. But they took pity on his plight, as many of us do nowadays, and took a chance on the boy. It paid off, too. The boy had found his calling and flourished. Everything came up spotless. I remember Tony coming into the shop one afternoon, telling me that he'd never seen the place so clean, not even when he bought it. Then, a few nights ago, just after getting started, the boy felt like he wasn't alone. Not quite like someone was watching him but he was certain someone was in the restaurant with him. Every groan and uneven noise the Atwood boy heard, he was sure to be an intruder. For the first time since his employ began, the boy yearned for the hustle and bustle of opening hours. Then he heard scratching. He had to go searching. He was terrified, but he couldn't halt his fervor anymore. He had to find whoever or whatever was in the restaurant with him. The scratching, he assures me, was coming from upstairs, in the dining room. He grabbed himself a set of matches, lighting the path ahead of him. He was worried that if he turned on all the house lights, someone would tell Tony what was going on, and then Tony would come to him with questions. Upstairs, the restaurant was empty, still almost silent. The only noise was the blasted scratching, except now it was coming from beneath them, in the basement. He tried to convince himself that it was just a rat, maybe one that had gotten itself caught in a trap and, though it hadn't died, was mortally wounded and, while it tried to find a quiet place to pass, dragged the trap around on his neck like some sort of macabre necklace. He checked beneath the sink. Nothing but pipes and a few bottles of cleaner. He traced the skirting board with his finger and found a deep crack in one corner. He told me it was strange because the rest of the wall and the skirting... Were without blemish, crack, or any sign of accidental damage. Yet there was this crack, wide enough for the Atwood boy to fit his pinky finger into, deep enough for it to swallow his finger whole. When he pulled it back, he recoiled. Up to the knuckle, the boy was covered in ooze, a purple primal slick that he assured me smelled just Awful. When I eventually went down there, I must concur with the boy, the odor was something truly nasty, like an old fish or some rotten chicken fresh out of the packet. Whatever was in the crack and was now on the boy's finger, he must have disturbed it, because just as the boy retrieved his digit, more of the ooze started seeping out of the crack, almost as if the skirting was bleeding, a bust artery from within the walls. He rinsed his hand and tossed a rag into the wretched gloop. In seconds, it was soaked, overcome. The smell had worsened too, making the boy feel quite unwell. He just about managed to hold on to his supper and tried throwing paper towels at the floor to clear up the oily slick. Of course, the towels were no match for the, well, whatever it was. So the boy grabbed a mop, but that was no good either. It, too, was consumed. He lit a match, if only to dissipate some of the foul smell. But he burnt his finger and dropped the match. Upon contact with the flame, the ooze recoiled, yelped like a pit bull that had been crushed by a truck, and retreated. Of course, the boy told his employers, but they thought him quite mad. Thought maybe he'd mixed one too many chemicals and started seeing things that just could not be. He even started to believe it, too. But just as I started this morning... The Atwood boy comes running up to the door, banging and hollering like he'd just seen our Lord Christ in the soap bubbles, except he was scared out of his mind, near to drowning in sweat, and covered in horrific bruises. I opened up the door and embraced the boy. He hugged me so tight while he trembled and cried. I never thought he'd let me go, but he did, and eventually he told me everything. Everything I've just told you and more." He told me how he'd been at the dishes for a few hours when he heard a plate smash on the floor. Then another, then another. A pile of dishes hadn't been piled right, and as the boy moved a heavy pan away, the whole lot toppled to the tile floor. He'd broken plates before, and Tony didn't pay it any mind, so the Atwood boy wasn't worried about that. But he noticed that he'd cracked the tile beneath the pile of crockery. Tony would be right mad about that, he was sure. Only when he was sweeping up the mess did he notice that the purple ooze was seeping up through the cracks in the tile. The boy tried to stomp it down, force it to retreat once more like it had before. But it was no good. As his shoe hit the ground, the ooze gushed up an eruption of thick slime. As the ooze fell, it began to take shape. Almost like that of another person. This Horrid structure stood close to seven foot tall, towering over the boy, consisting of a liquid that had somehow hardened into shape, but was also still wet and sticky. The boy tried to run, but his bones wouldn't allow his exit. The smell was horrific now, but his legs just wouldn't go. The ooze lurched at him, grabbing and attacking the boy. As the boy was thrashed, he remembered that he still had a pack of matches in his pocket. After last time, he vowed to always keep a pack with him just in case. He managed to get his arms free and strike a match. He threw it at his attacker. My God, how it yelled. I thought I had heard something from the shop, but I thought it was just those damn kids again after a late night's drinking and loitering. You all know what they're like. In an Instant, The ooze and the figure it was built from were gone. He quit, don't you know. Left his notice on the counter and ran out the door. He must have seen the lights on in the store and dashed on over. He told me he was planning on going to New York, was going to try and find his grandfather. After he told me everything, I told him to sort himself a glass of water while I took a look at the place. The basement was a mess, but I saw no ooze. Though, like I said, the smell down there was something foul. When I came back to check on the boy, he was gone. You'd never know he'd even been there if it weren't for the purple footprints on the floor and the unstruck match laying in the sink.
0: The fear of deep water is quite common. That's why it takes a special kind of person to plunge beneath the surface and dive into the darkness. And in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, we hear the tale of one man whose job was to recover the body of a long lost diver, a dive that happened to be in the deepest underwater cave in the world. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett so be grateful that some are willing to risk it all in the service of others as we hear about The Final Dive of Walter St. Clair.
5: My husband was an experienced diver. Cool under pressure, adventurous and always patient he taught diving classes to newbies which is how we met I wasn't much of a diver myself but I enjoyed accompanying him and being his eye in the sky so to speak his preference was cave diving so I'd lounge by the water and enjoy nature while monitoring him as he explored once he'd surfaced we'd watch his video footage together we had a good time He was serious about what he did, and always invested in the greatest, newest, safest, and most expensive equipment on the market. And, as it turns out, that equipment was how I was able to be with him in his final moments. My husband died five years ago, at the bottom of Haranichka Propast in the Czech Republic. He died on his third dive trying to recover a body that had been lost for years. What he said in his final moments has been on my mind ever since that day. Communicating with someone underwater isn't the easiest or cheapest thing to do, especially when you're tackling what's thought to be the deepest underwater cave in the world. That's why most divers limit communication to hand gestures. That was not an option for us, since I wasn't joining him under. Instead, I monitored his heart rate, and we communicated through what you would call a radio, except it transmitted sound waves, not radio waves. The result was similar, though the audio quality wasn't the best, especially at lower depths. Going down, he'd set up a series of relays and amplifiers to make sure our voices reached one another. There's an informal rule among divers that if you see a fellow diver in danger, you try to help them. If you can't save them, or if they're already dead, you try to bring them home. Two weeks before Walter died, as he was exploring the cave for the first time... My ever-calm husband's voice came in through the radio. There's a I remember feeling a nod of apprehension in my throat. It wasn't fear for Walter, per se, though maybe it should have been. There was a reason I never joined him in those caves... And it was my fear of those tight, dark passages and sharp rocks that could so easily tear off your equipment. I felt secondhand fear for the trapped diver, knowing he must have died alone, disoriented, and knowing full well he was doomed. That's the thing with diving deaths, you know. You almost always know, because short of suddenly passing out, you can usually see a road map of how, why, and how long you've got left. Walter explained the body was stuck to a cave wall. He couldn't see exactly what he was stuck to, but when a push didn't dislodge him, it was clear he wasn't going anywhere. Walter posited it must have been the body of Miloslav Novak, who had disappeared exploring the cave a good 12 years before Walter. He was doubtlessly just bones at that point, but Walter hoped to recover his body all the same. However, he was set to start his long ascent and decompression, so he flagged his location with an orange marker and decided he'd come back later to be safe. Sure enough, a week later, with a lightweight lighting rig and a rope, he plunged back into the water to try and free his fellow diver. Unfortunately, he failed to relocate Miloslav and his marker. Walter ultimately resurfaced, unsuccessful. He poured over the map of the cave, convinced he'd missed something. That he'd taken a wrong turn. It was dark. Maybe he'd originally gone farther than he thought. He wanted to try a third time. I did try to convince him to let it go, but I'll admit I didn't try very hard. I didn't actually see a problem with his plan, only that I was eager to get back home to Canada. But Walter insisted, and I agreed. And so, once he was ready, my husband, Walter St. Clair, took his final dive. All was well at first, and he was progressing nicely. He had several backup oxygen tanks. My Walter was always the cautious type and everything one might need to free a body, from ropes to knives. It was about an hour in when he finally saw something. The radio made a scratching
2: noise. There's my marker. He's got to be near.
5: He sounded... Excited. Optimistic. I let his slow, rhythmic breaths relax me, hoping to distract myself from the thoughts of cold, dark crevices and the bones that lurked within. I tried not to focus on the mental image of Walter laying his hand on Miloslav's body, only for human soup to pour out in a rosy sludge blurring his vision. I tried to think of kittens and rainbows and the elation Miloslav's parents would feel to finally have their boy back. And then Walter's heart rate increased. Is everything okay down there? Yes, I'd imagine a large mass floating in the darkness could easily startle a person. But even after the initial shock, his heart rate remained tense.
0: He's still stuck. I'm trying to...
5: He didn't finish that thought though it was obvious he was trying to either untangle or unwedge or un-whatever was needed. I waited by the pool of water, my toes digging into my shoes. I tried not to say anything because I didn't want to distract him. Under that much pressure, any movement requires a lot of physical effort. I liken it to the intense pull of gravity. There's a force down there. It might not pull you down... But it has its own weight that pulls you from the inside, trying to coil you up like a closed fist, so you don't want to waste energy on anything that isn't absolutely necessary. Walter's heart rate increased again. I should have known from the horror in his tone that this wasn't explicitly a good thing. I thought it was. I thought he meant he'd cut him loose. But as his heart started climbing again, all my nightmares of cave walls closing in around me came back.
3: Walter, are you okay?
2: Move.
5: Sometimes, the pressure and lack of oxygen gets to people. Even experienced divers. Even people trained to recognize the warning signs. It's one thing to know disorientation can occur, but it's another to experience it. Walter was starting to panic, and all I could think was that he might be succumbing to hypoxia. Walter. My Walter. Who was always so safe and took every precaution, who was down there only because he felt he had a duty to bring a lost diver home. I tried to calm him down and to tell him to come back, even though I feared it was too late. Decompression would take hours, and if he was as bad as he sounded, I doubted he had time. Like I said earlier, you usually know. Walter started screaming, a mix of howls and pleas. Let
0: me go.
2: Oh. No. He's coming. Oh. Oh.
3: I sobbed as his heart rate spiked even higher. I tried to guide him as best I could. Change your oxygen tank, follow the rope back, come back to me. But I couldn't get through to him. He was too far gone. And so quickly, too. And then his heart rate slowed. (laughs) Walter! He didn't reply. He was unconscious. His breathing was shallow and irregular. I listened to it, telling him how much I loved him, how proud I was of him. I sang to him. I know he was already out, but maybe he could hear me still, like a coma patient. I talked and I listened, and eventually both the heart rate and breathing came to a painful stop.
5: I've lived the past five years, thinking he succumbed to hypoxia, and died alone in that deep, dark cave, never to be seen again. I've since given lectures on diving safety, On recognizing early signs of hypoxia in yourself and your fellow divers. I've tried to stress the importance of safety and protocol to people. And I've tried to make them understand that even if you do everything right, the outcome can still lead to tragedy. I didn't want people to be afraid of diving. Walter wouldn't have wanted that. I just wanted divers to be more careful. A few days ago, a diver recovered what was left of Walter's body. I was wrong when I thought Milislav's parents would be grateful and relieved to get their son back. I felt a hollow feeling. Any shred of hope I might have had, dumb as it might have been, that he'd somehow miraculously came to, found his way out through another hole but suffered amnesia. Every what-if scenario that sometimes got me through the night was now wiped off the board. And then I saw the video. His headcam had somehow survived five years underwater, the SD card intact. I debated whether to watch it, but I eventually pulled up the file. Darkness. Walter's hands threading water, cave walls, the orange marker he'd left. And then his head spun sharply, and I could just barely see the other diver's body floating over him, perhaps jostled by a water current. The angle shifted with Walter's head as he swam closer. There was a long moment of quiet contemplation as he tried to figure out his game plan. I could see him flipping through his tools, looking for something. And that's when the arms, floating limply in his line of sight, suddenly reached out and grabbed him.
0: Your board, hook your leggy, sit in the pocket, and carve that cutback. If you understood that, it means you're a surfer. It's a challenging hobby and one which many consider an almost spiritual experience. But in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Taus, we meet one man on his final wave of the night, riding the surf in the setting sun, all alone out there, or so he thinks. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett and Erica Sanderson. So hang ten and all that stuff, but be careful on your deck. It's a surfboard, not a dinner plate.
7: I feel like a god gliding across the water. Nothing comes close. I'm free. Breathing in the salty air and riding on Mother Nature's back. Can't wait to bring Cassie. Not to this beach. Jen would kill me. This one's a good one. Small but clean. And it's peeling endlessly. What was that? Just ahead. Goddamn mind playing tricks again. Hasn't happened for a while. Not since they put the shark nets in. Must be four months since... Shit, I can't even remember the kid's name. But it does make you edgier. Finally, the wave begins to lose momentum, and I somersault into the water, kicking my legs more quickly than normal to get back to the surface. The evening surf has been kind. Nice, clean waves that rolled forever across almost translucent waters. But now the light is getting low, and I'm beginning to feel the cold. should have gone in an hour ago. In the distance, I note there are only two remaining cars parked alongside the cliff edge. My white truck and what looks to be an old red station wagon. Further down the shore, I see the likely owners. Two adults sit in the sand, watching the child splashing in the water. A large black dog, possibly a Labrador, circles them and wags its tail frantically. I have no idea of the time, but guess it's approaching six by the position of the sun. I best be getting back. A quick shower and a change before date night with Jen at our restaurant. I hope the babysitter works out this time. Cassie didn't rate the last one highly. Said she was mean and put her muddy boots on the couch. I need this, though. Just a quick recharge in my little sanctuary. The sudden cacophony of noise that explodes the serenity sends my heart racing, and I watch as the blanket of white sweeps across the evening sky, There isn't a single seagull left on the water, which is darker now, less inviting. An inexplicable unease washes over me, an ominous feeling that I have outstayed my welcome. I mount the board and crane my neck, looking over my shoulder for the next wave to take me in. The low sun cuts the ocean in two, and I squint into its brightness as I track the approaching lump of water. I begin to paddle. My arm's already heavy from the three-hour session, and it's slow going, seemingly taking forever to pick up momentum. Finally, I get some speed up and glance back at the approaching wave. Far behind the developing peak, I see something break the surface. Orange dots still dance in front of my eyes from the glare of the sinking sun. But I swear to God, something temporarily emerged from the ocean. I try not to panic, but my heart rate doesn't let up and my stomach tightens. Before I can even process what it could have been, the back of the board begins to lift with the momentum of the wave. I pump my arms some more and try to push myself up, but a bolt of searing pain in my right calf sends me plummeting into the ocean. Water begins to fill my mouth as I let out an inevitable but redundant scream, and my world begins to spin violently as the wave churns me over and over. The pain is off the charts, disorienting. I reach for my calf. It feels like cement, as though it's cramping, but worse. This isn't good. I thrash desperately at the water lurching towards the light, but my right leg now feels stiff and extraneous like dead weight. Suddenly to my right, there's a distorted but high-pitched cry, and I turn to see a blurred vortex of sand. A two-foot-wide hole in the ocean floor is already replenishing. I take in more water as my movements towards the surface become more urgent and panicked. Christ, my head feels like it's going to explode. I glance back to see the sand now settled. There's a pair of large yellow eyes staring right into me and… Christ, is that a smile? The creature begins to swim effortlessly towards me. Finally, cold air wraps around my face and I take greedy mouthfuls as I stretch for my board. Grimacing, I heave myself up, ignoring the pain that seems to be spreading down my entire right-hand side. I begin to paddle for my life. Only an incomprehensible croak comes out as I scream towards the shore. The family's further away now, though. I see them close to the steps. As I flail inefficiently with one good arm, and one that is beginning to stiffen, I see it beneath me, smoothly gliding through the water. I think about Cassie and Jen. No, fuck it. No way. I thrust my left arm into the water, but just before my right hand follows, I see the atlas of black lines forming across my skin, and it sends my heart pumping even faster. I scream for help, but it comes out as a raspy whisper. The back of the board begins to lift, and I dig in deep, pushing through the crippling pain. The wave takes me and I lose sight of the dark shape that was shadowing me. I take the opportunity to suck in huge mouthfuls of air as I guide the board away from the small sandbank ahead. I'm going to make it. I'm close to shore, and I afford myself a glance behind. Its pale green head and yellow eyes are out of the water, and looking back, I swear to fucking God that is definitely a smile. A hand hits the sand and I clumsily dismount the board, stumbling ungracefully to my knees. The family is standing near the red station wagon. I try and call for help, but nothing comes out. Nothing. I try to stand, but topple over into the water, catching the side of my head on a small rock. Exhausted and breathing heavy, I drag myself along on my hands and knees, half expecting that thing to grab my ankle and pull me back into the water. It's arduous. My body is seizing up, and my left arm is doing most of the work. The dog barks excitedly. Has it seen me? That same consuming pain is beginning to work up my left leg, and my mind is telling me to give it up. The kid is at the edge of the cliff now. He's waving. I let out a silent scream and wave my left arm, but his mother quickly brings him in from the edge. I can hear her shouting her warnings. I'm almost completely out of the water now, but still, I feel vulnerable. Push, Jack. Push. The pain is unbearable, waves of it washing over me, each one worse than the last. There are more of those black veins in my left wrist, too. I watch in horror as they work impossibly quickly up my arm and across the back of my hand, bringing immeasurable agony. What the fuck is happening? My body is locking up. This blackness... Poison, or whatever it is, consuming me so quickly and efficiently. I dig the fingers of my left hand into the sand and squirm across it like a worm. I go to repeat the process, but this time my fingers won't uncurl. They're fixed in place, and I have no control over them. My left arm collapses from beneath me, and I fall face first onto the sand, its graininess filling my mouth. From above... The engine of the station wagon kicks into action Rattling its loud hum over the cliff edge I can't die like this I won't My arms won't move Goddamn what is happening to me Slowly I manage to twist my neck Letting my head finally rest uncomfortably against the cold sand I feel too vulnerable Exposed Where's that thing? Christ what the hell is it? With all my concentration and effort, I begin to rock from side to side, trying to build up momentum with each oscillation. Cassie's face flashes in front of me, the toothy smile and big green eyes. I begin to count down from three. How much would I give for a hug right now? Two. This feels like a nightmare. One. Fuck it. The car roughly revs just as I flip over onto my back. Pain explodes through my body, and helplessly, I listen as the engine fades into the distance. The relief of getting onto the sand has passed. I am alone here. No, not alone. The tide is going to come in, and whatever did this is still out there. I try to move, but from the neck down, nothing. My legs and arms are useless. The last of the sun spills across the ocean, and the moon is already visible, working its pull on the ocean blanket. There's a tear in the wetsuit, a claw-like rip that looks more like a bear strike than something from the sea. I move my neck to see the trees above blowing gently in the evening breeze, but I can only just feel its touch on my skin. I try to move my toes. I try to move my fingers. I try to form a sound with my mouth, but my body is in lockdown. The water froths angrily at my feet as I look out towards the horizon, ignoring my grotesque, blackened feet. There's no sign of the creature. My eyes begin to glisten, spilling water that I can no longer feel. Jen thinks I'm at the other beach, the one with the flags and lifeguard, but there aren't any decent breaks there. Fuck. I'm screwed. I don't want to die. Perhaps the poison will eventually leave my system. Maybe it's temporary. This is also fucking impossible. There's nothing like that supposed to be out there. The creature appears in my mind with explicit detail. Elongated head, punctured with fiery yellow eyes. Piercing. Mm. Pure evil. Not predatory, even. Beyond that as if more purposeful and driven by something beyond instinct. And that smile. The pale green face was smooth, large gills on both sides, with red lips that opened to reveal only a black hole. No teeth at all. Its body was about six feet long, serpent-like, sinewy and scaly, and the tail fin looked as sharp as the claws. What I initially thought were arms were boneless, slimy, tentacle-like limbs ending with four almost human-like fingers, except longer and spindlier, and each one home to a huge arched claw that can rip through rubber as though it's paper. It was the stuff of nightmares. The pain is beginning to subside. But as I look back towards my blackened feet and wince, I'm not sure I take that as positive. Already the water seems further in. But that's surely my imagination. It doesn't happen that quickly. What was that? I try to crane my neck to peer over the lumpy water, but only have limited movement. I wait until the small wave gives way. No. Fuck no. The two yellow eyes hover over the now dark water like floating embers. The accompanying moan fills me with fear. Morose, alien, and wet... I can feel it working its way down my spine. Its mouth begins to open, exposing the toothless cavern. Gradually the noise changes, becoming higher pitched and more excited. I swear to God that it's laughing. The head starts swinging from left to right, and it snaps its mouth open and closed. I screw my eyes shut tight and try to move something other than my neck. When will Jen start getting worried? Thirty minutes? An hour? Even then, she likely won't find me. I made a promise that I would never come to this beach. Not after that kid. And the other surfer from last year. The one people have already forgotten about. Nothing. Fuck! Help! Someone, please help! Internally, I scream, willing my body to wake up. But the blackness is spreading everywhere. It's inside me, too. I know it. I can feel its cold grip around my bones. It's shutting me down. Where's it gone? Why didn't it just kill me when it had the chance? It re-emerges. Closer. Perhaps only twenty feet away now. Moonlight bouncing off the top of its long, sleek head. It snaps its jaws at me and then begins that mocking, almost infantile noise that I swear is laughter. I watch it approach until its scaly body is almost half out of the water and only fifteen feet away. It smells the air. Or is it trying to smell me? I blink urgently as the breeze blows sand into my eyes. Christ I can't see. The creature's only ten feet away when I resume my watch through watery eyes. My heart is pounding. I'm helpless, waiting for whatever is about to happen. Please come look for me, Jen. There's a noxious mixture of rotting vegetation and death in the air now. It's stifling and adding to the claustrophobic sensation of being trapped in my own body. The creature squeals another high-pitched cry and lurches forward, only about eight feet between us now. Both of its thin tentacles plant into the wet sand, but offer no support. And I watch as the creature collapses to the sand... It squeals with frustration, and perhaps impatience. It can't come out of the water! Slowly and laboriously, it slinks its way back into the ocean, snapping its jaws towards me. Suddenly my neck feels like it's on fire, an intense searing pain that forces my head onto the sand. I scrunch my eyes and pray for it to pass, imagining walking up the pathway to our door and basking in the warm yellow light emanating from the bay window of our lounge. Please. No. I can no longer move my neck. All I have is my eye movement and breathing. Above, I hear another car, its headlights casting a temporary beam over the cliffside. Please stop. Please. But it's already gone. The pain is relentless, overpowering, and my breathing can't get enough air in. I'm... From my peripheral vision, I see the undulation of water on either side of me. I'm constantly blinking now to get the salt water away. Shit, how long was I out for? Unable to move my neck to track the creature's yellow eyes or to locate its position, I feel even more vulnerable. Shit, that shrill again. It's close. So close. The moon is something I usually observe with immense respect. The power it must have to command the ocean. But tonight it's working against me, slowly drawing evil closer. I can do nothing but wait. I think of all the events I'm going to miss. All the milestones in Cassie's life. How will she take the news? How will Jen cope? Why did I have to listen to my ego? Jen must be getting worried now. I hear another car, and I pray for the engine to stop, but it quickly fades into the distance. I'm done. This is it. No fight, just waiting helplessly for my fate. Salty ocean water splashes into my mouth, and I try to cough it out. Most of it emerges, but some of it settles unpleasantly at the back of my throat. I try again, but only for it to be replaced with more. Something ahead. I try to move my eyes to see, but I can't. Shit. Not my eyes. Not my fucking eyes. The smattering of stars above glimmer as usual. I'm being pulled along the sand now, further into the water. I watch helplessly as the evening sky rushes by. I'm submerged. The pressure is building quickly. I want to breathe, but instincts tell me to hold on. The creature lets out its hateful squeal from somewhere in front, and it sounds even more terrifying under the water, in its own territory. I'm at its mercy, but I think I already know my fate. Something else is going on, too. My head doesn't feel right, and inside my chest, I feel so cold. No, beyond cold. Suddenly, I find myself out of the water. It must have taken me to the sandbank. I take in the moon and stars for what might be the last time. The excited, high-pitched shrill haunts the night once more. My upper half is being raised, and I see the creature's tentacle extended towards me from the blackness of the water. I'm looking into those yellow eyes now and watching the smile spread slowly across the creature's face. I'm full of fear, but my heart rate, in contrast... It's beginning to slow down. Blackness is creeping into the outside of my vision as the creature continues to pull me towards it. It's wearing a necklace of bones. Human, I think. Something I didn't notice before. Its yellow eyes are frenzied and merciless. This isn't nature. This is killing for pleasure. And I know it's been playing with me. The creature moves its face towards me. It's only a few inches away now, and I can smell death on its breath. It begins to inhale me, savoring the fear, eyes on me all the time, and smile never fading. It squeals an ear-piercing cry and swipes at the leg of my wetsuit with its other, tentacle-like limb. The razor-sharp claws shred through the rubber with ease, and I watch helplessly as the soup-like blackness begins to spill out, exposing the bone beneath. Hungrily, it begins to slurp up the black gravy through its cavernous mouth, as though the sandbank were just its dinner plate. I close my eyes and pray for death to take me. The sound of this thing feeding on my liquidized flesh is too much to bear. From behind, I hear another car. This time, the engine stops. doesn't fade, just stops. The scream is loud and urgent. Jack! But it's dragging me back into the water now. I let myself breathe.
0: In our final tale, we meet a woman who lives as a recluse in a small cabin outside a village on the edge of a mossy swamp. Not the most hospitable place. And in this tale, shared with us by author Robin Firth, when a visitor arrives at her door seeking information about a local legend, the woman is happy to share a most fantastical and cosmic story. Performing this tale is Erica Sanderson. So watch your step and avoid the sinkholes. The ground is so unstable, it might not be worth the journey to learn about the Bog King's daughter.
1: You can stop pounding on the door now. Sorry, but I was in the cellar. "'and I didn't know that you were standing out here in the rain. "'Well, what did you expect turning up at the home of an old recluse like me? "'And you, the star student of the very man who forced me out of my job at the university? "'Yes, you can come in. I'll let you, "'even though you're dragging half the bog over my threshold. "'I must say... "'I was more than a little surprised when you showed up at the village pub to talk to me. "'But I thought even you would have had more sense than to try and follow me home. "'No one in their right mind traverses the bog on foot after dark. "'And on tonight, of all nights, "'there are at least a dozen sinkholes between the edges of the village and my cabin. "'Didn't they tell you that at the pub? "'And then you almost got caught in one, didn't you?' Those holes are like quicksand. You think you're putting your foot on solid ground, but then when you shift your weight forward, down you go, neck deep in silt and mud. And you, all alone, with no one to rescue you. You are awfully lucky. You'll have to take off those wet clothes. I can lend you some of mine. They won't fit. Even in my old age, I'm built like an Amazon. "'but at least they'll be dry. "'What a state you're in. "'In fact, I'd say that you're as filthy as the sacrificial corpses "'that my father used to haul out of the bog. "'No, it's not a very flattering comparison, "'but you should see yourself. "'If I were a superstitious person, "'I'd swear that you died in that sinkhole "'and now it's your ghost that's come to talk to me. That's sorry, dear, but it's true.' The turning of the ear, after all, and according to local legend, tonight the Bog King wakes, bringing with him his retinue of the drowned. Call me foolish, but in this at least I believe what the villagers say. On Van Nog, our ghosts crowd close, brought to the surface of the waters by the waking of the Bog King. It's time to pay old debts but it's also the night when the old year dies and the new one is yet to be born from the mud. It is the night of shifting destinies because the veil between worlds wavers and is as insubstantial as the poisonous weedy slime that grows over the bog's drowning holes. Here, drink this. Wrap that blanket around your shoulders and pull my old rocker closer to the fire. No centralized heating in these old cabins, not like in the city. No wood to burn either, it's too precious, just peat cut by the villagers. I always feel strange burning sod, I've done it since my father brought my brother and me here when we were six. The locals say that the peat is the flesh of the king... And so I always imagine that the black spiral of smoke rising from the fire is full of bog spirits. I always thank the peat as I throw it onto the flames and offer a little prayer. It's safest to do that. You know, to show respect for the beliefs of the place. After dark, when the wind begins to howl as it does over the vast, flat expanse of the bog, I can almost hear the spirits singing... Here in the wastes, they always surround us. Above, below, to either side. How could they not, with the bog being such a dominant feature of life? Out here, it rules us. Hard for a city girl like you to understand, but it's true. Even this cabin is built on top of a hundred millennia of peat, like the layering of centuries. Stamp your foot outside the door and you'll feel the earthquake beneath you like a great quivering, breathing beast. Now, don't laugh. It's rude. And don't think I'm unaware of the stories that circulate about me. I'm old, but I'm not stupid. More than a few of my former colleagues have called me mad to my face, but it doesn't bother me. I suppose my eyes don't help my reputation either. One green, one white. I'm not blind in my white eye, you know. It's just that the sight it has is, shall we say, different. My odd looks haven't helped me climb the career ladder, but they've aided me as a researcher. You see, here in the Boglands, people don't have an abhorrence of abnormality. Quite the contrary. In the language of the bogs, I have been touched by the gods. But it's getting late. As soon as you're warmed through, you should go. There's nothing for you here to discover but an old woman's memories, so you can file your report in the morning and be done with it. Oh, such a flood of excuses! Don't be so embarrassed. You're not the first one to be sent out here to check up on me, and you won't be the last. I know the risks of my area of study. The ancient religion of Inesque is outlawed. And those of us still brave enough to record what is left of it are considered a threat to the state. Oppressed people and suppressed religions. No one seems able to tell the difference anymore. I suppose they are afraid that the archaeologists and historians inspire the storytellers. And the storytellers inspire the rebels. But I suppose that's the way of the world now. Even the universities are in the pockets of the censors. You know, I'm not popular with the government these days. To stay here longer than is necessary, to try and get to know me better will only make you suspect too. It will hurt your prospects, and to one as ambitious as yourself, that's not a risk worth taking. I can drive you to your vehicle, and you can make the three-hour trek back to the city before midnight. The treacherous narrow road is probably already flooded, but it will still be possible. Barely. And I really do advise you to drive as quickly as you can since this is a dangerous time to be in a place where you're not wanted, and outsiders are not wanted in the boglands at the turning of the year. Those old practices, the sacrifices that my father studied, still occasionally take place, despite the government's propaganda to the contrary. They fear those old rites, hence they try to silence those who would speak of them. Those like me. You're really intent on staying, aren't you? Well, who am I to dissuade you? As I said, tonight your destiny rests on a pivot, and only you can set it tottering in the direction that you want. I must say, I doubt that it will be a good one. But since you're going to stay, let's celebrate your exile with a glass of yellow wine. "'Yes, I know it's illegal, but it's also the traditional drink of the Van Gogh. "'Besides, I brew it myself from the feathery leaves of the tram-tram plants that grow around my cabin. "'The flavour is somewhat bitter, but I think you'll find its effects rather surprising. "'Come down with me into the cellar while I fetch a bottle. "'Cabins as small as this one rarely have cellars, but mine does.' It's not much more than a hole in the peat, but it serves its purpose well enough. When my father dug the foundations of this place, he found some amazing artifacts, but I'll tell you more about those later. It's getting late, and the spirits of the past grow impatient. The trapdoor's a bit stiff, but it always opens when you give it a good tug. Don't worry. Pushing it open is always easier, so we won't get stuck down below. Oh, hand me that candle, will you? And the tinderbox. The cellar is as windowless and black as the waters of the bog. Shalassa! To the resurgence of the bog king and the renewal of his retinue. That's the traditional toast of Van Nog. And on the subject of tradition... On this night, the old are supposed to tell the young the stories of their own dead youths. So, if you're willing to listen, I'll tell you a bit about mine. It will pass the hours till dawn at any rate, and I'd never sleep on Van Hock. But before I begin, let me fill up your glass. And don't worry overly much about the slight dizziness. It's an effect of the wine. You may begin to feel a tingling in your fingers and toes, but don't concern yourself. The quickest way to make it pass is to drink more. So here, let's have another toast. You know, I'm actually glad you decided to stay. I get so few visitors from the city these days, and to be able to talk of myself, well, that's a rare pleasure. And besides... I have a sneaking suspicion that my past holds the key to your future. Like you, I was born in the beautiful white city of Inesk, the capital of this decaying bureaucratic empire. My father was an archaeologist, and my mother was an historian. But my mother was a sickly woman, and the birth of myself and my twin brother weakened her. She died when we were five, and after that, Father couldn't bear the confines of the city anymore. Hence, he applied for permits to do fieldwork in the box. For many years, Father had suspected that human sacrifice had been practiced by the ancient people of our land, and even by the founders of Inesk. But this was the first time he'd be able to gather proof. Officially, His area of expertise was ancient metalwork, and he'd pulled enough silver bracelets and copper serving bowls out of the peat to interest the officials. Even in those days, fieldwork was a risky business. But since nothing offensive was found in Father's proposals, the university gave him a three-year leave of absence and a grant to excavate part of the bog. It wasn't much of a grant, but that was fine with Father since the smallness of the sum meant he couldn't afford to house any students or colleagues and would have to use local people for labor. People so poor that they'd work for free as long as they got to keep the peat they'd dug. Father was overjoyed to be setting out on his own, his two children in tow, since his grant proposals had not been completely honest. You see, though Father's official speciality was the metalwork of the bogs, his actual passion was the ancient religion of Inesque. While dredging the brackish waters at the edges of the old wooden walkways over the bogs, and while cutting into the peat to find what might be preserved there, he'd found things that interested him much more than jewellery or cooking utensils. And those things were bodies. Here, in the bogs, they say that the peat has a long memory... Even scientifically speaking, that statement has proven to be true. The bodies Father found had become dark and leathery from the effects of brackish water, and their hair had been dyed reddish brown. But they still had their eyelashes and teeth and fingernails. You could even see the walls of their fingerprints on the tips of their fingers. Slicing them open, Father could search their guts and discover what they had eaten before they died ritual meals of yew berries and snake venom, but the carbon dating of their bones provided the most spectacular results. The most ancient corpse was over 3,000 years old, while the newest was less than a hundred. That implied that the ritual of sacrifice had continued, perhaps unbroken, for at least three millennia. Of course, By the time we arrived, the villagers had been converted, officially at least, to the state religion. But Father suspected that much more went on in secret than the locals admitted. His only hope was to find his way into their confidence. In this, he was successful beyond his wildest dreams. In the end, Father was allowed not just to document the people's rituals but also to participate. But this, most fundamental of honors, proved to be his undoing. Like so many rationalists, Father did not understand the depths of his own psyche. Oh, he studied psychology, brain function, the physiology of the dreaming mind. He thought he understood the biochemistry of vision, of altered states and consciousness... In his youth, he'd experimented with peyote, hashish, magasca, even the fine white powder made from the roots of the tram-tram. He thought his years of study had prepared him for anything. But what the untrained mind honed to ritual can accept, the rational mind often cannot bear. The last thing father expected when he took part in one of those ancient but forbidden rituals "'was to see the face of the Bog God. "'I suppose I must pause in my story to explain a little about the particular landscape of the Bogs "'and of the difficulties faced by those living here. "'As you know, life in the bleaks has always been tenuous. "'Few crops can grow in the acid soils, "'and the harsh and changeable weather takes its toll both on young animals and on young children.' The people fish and hunt. They gather roots and mushrooms and wild fruit. They also herd the hardy sheep and goats that have wandered the bogs for millennia. All of those are important to the bog folk's existence. But the beating heart of their culture lies in the peat and in the tram tram. The tram tram plant only grows here in the bleaks. Its fibrous stems are woven into fences, made into bowls, and are painstakingly prepared to become the strong, water-resistant fabrics woven and worn by the bog folk. The peat is used for fuel, for insulation, and in the distilling process for yellow tram-tram wine. Hence, both the peat and the tram-tram are considered sacred, since they represent the life-giving benevolence of the bog king. But, like all gods, the Bog King has a shadow side. What he gives in the peat and the tram tram, he takes with the sinkholes and the mud, the fogs and the sudden weather changes. Loss of life here in the Bleaks is to be expected, but the forefathers of the locals found a way to ease the severity of it. They minimized their losses by bargaining with the god. In exchange for the life of the tribe, the tribe gave life to the bog. Sometimes that life was symbolic. Cooking vessels, beautiful jewelry, unusual items received in trade with outsiders. The number of transistor radios that Father pulled from the bog was staggering. But they were seen to be a kind of foreign magic. And what better gift to give to your god than one of sorcery? But during bad harvests, or in times of danger, greater gifts were required. Most frequently, the gifts were animals. But sometimes, they were humans. Although no large sacrifice has been required for many generations, the people still longed to commune with their god. And it was from this longing that the annual ritual of Shume was born. For weeks before the summer harvest, the Kachinka, the village witch, fasted, waiting for the dreams that would tell her which of the villagers would participate in the ritual. Sometimes children as young as twelve took part, and those who did were expected to grow up to be Kachinkas. Most often, however, the participants were elders, some of whom had descended into the bog king's realm scores of times. As you know, the bog constantly grows. What is a sinkhole or morass today will be peat in a thousand years' time. The peat is impenetrable except by digging, but the brackish water and mud will accept a human body willingly. Hence the ritual form of Shumi. During the 18th month of our stay, The local witch had a dream in which father was reborn from the mud. Hence, he was invited to take part. Since the whole village watched the ceremony, my brother Philip and I were also witnesses. I don't think Philip ever got over it. That year was a mud year, so for the three-day event, a rough shelter was built on the edge of the bog. It was nothing much, just a lean-to woven from the fibrous stems of the tram-tram, complete with sod roof. And for the ritual itself, the village elders wove eight cages of tram-tram stems, which were to be lowered into the morass. Eight cages, one for each participant. As my father was to take part, one of those cages was created for him. Only those who have lived in the bleaks can comprehend both the horror and the sacredness of Kasashume and can truly understand why there is no room for the rational mind here in the box. When father was lowered into the morass, I was nine and a half years old. I still remember the event and when I close my eyes, I see it as clearly and as vividly as I see you now. My father... The accomplished anthropologist, recipient of numerous academic honors, was stripped of his clothing, his books, and in essence, his identity. Naked and crouching, he was locked into his tram-tram cage, no more than three feet by three feet, and with the obligatory breathing reed clamped between his lips, he was lowered into the mud. I believe that... At the last moment, he had second thoughts. After all, how did he know he wouldn't be lowered and left in the muddy slush like the numerous sacrificial victims he'd exhumed from the peat? I remember seeing the expression on his face shift from trepidation to sheer terror as the bog's muddy waters closed around his neck and then over his jaw, his lips clamped tightly around the cut end of the hollow breathing reed that would be his lifeline for the next three hours. I held Philip's hand as Father, his eyes wide with panic, was lowered into the mud. Can you imagine what it must be like to be embraced by mud? To have time become static in that underworld place where the medium of life is so much heavier than air? One's chest expands only with difficulty. The mud, after all, is thick. One is encased in bandages of mud and becomes mummified like the Egyptian god Osiris. And one's only hope of survival lies in the thin reed clasped between teeth and lips. Let go of the reed. Let it slip from between your lips for even a second. And you die. There have been cases during Shume when the suspension ropes have snapped, and the hapless victim has begun his slow freefall into the heart of the morass, which the locals believe is bottomless. In such cases, no effort is made to save the victim, since it is believed that the Bog King has claimed him. You see, the Bog King is a death god. And those whom he chooses have no place among the living anymore. Think about it. Contemplate it for a moment. Imagine yourself suspended in the mud, weightless, blind, existing out of time, like a child in the womb again, waiting to be reborn in the presence of the king. When they pulled father from the bog, he was raving mad. He recognized no one and seemed intent on doing himself and others harm. He couldn't even speak. According to the villagers, it wasn't my father they raised from the bog, but a mud demon. Sheknow. His spirit, they said, lived with the bog king. He'd become a kind of ambassador, representing the living in the court of the dead. My poor, brilliant but now mad sires spent the next six months chained and penned like a dog. The villagers fed him and clothed him, though he usually tore the clothes from his body until a fever carried him off. Philip and I became bog orphans, a kind of sacred state. Every house in the village was open to us, and every member of the tribe was obliged to feed us, house us, clothe us. But we belonged nowhere and to no one except perhaps to the bog. Two weeks after father died, Philip disappeared into the bog. We never found his body, though we searched the heaths and the mud holes and even the stunted beginnings of the distant woodlands. Not long after my brother's disappearance, I had my first vision. In it, I sank below the surface of the mud and came into the presence of the god. He was great and ugly and troll-like, with skin the colour of brackish water, and hands and feet so large and knotty that he could have held boulders in them. His skin was covered in warts like those of toads, but on his head was a great iron crown encrusted with golden lichens. To his left sat my brother, wearing a silver crown, and to his right sat my father, wearing one of bronze." When I knelt at the Bog King's feet, he rested his hands on my head. You see, he had chosen me. Soon after, I was taken by the Kachinka as an apprentice. Though I was an outsider by birth, I had lived so long among them that I knew of no other world. Besides, the Bog King had taken both my brother and my father so I had become related to the royal court of the dead. The Kachinka assured me that Philip was already betrothed to a bog spirit, so my nieces and nephews would be elementals, and I would be able to call on them when I practiced my magic. She also assured me that I would grow up to be a powerful Kachinka, and that someday I would lead our tribe in a great war against the growing city. By that time, Inesk seemed to me to be a dream and I felt no loyalty to it. My place was here, in the bog. It took the government officials another three years to find me. It's not that they hadn't tried before that, but the bog lands were even more inaccessible then, and my father had been purposefully vague about where he had set up his camp. Besides, the village folk did not want to give up their young kachinka especially one who showed such promise. Whenever officials arrived to investigate, the village folk assured them that I was dead, like my father and brother. But since neither my body nor that of my brother could ever be produced, the officials kept looking. And in the end, bribery can work wonders, even within a tight-knit community. At 13, I was put into a state orphanage, But they couldn't control me there. The other children feared me, and the adults couldn't discipline me. Those who crossed me died, though I was never tried for any crime, since those who do not officially believe in magic cannot punish those who practice it. Still, I was watched. By sixteen, I was in a rehabilitation camp. But by that time, I had begun to read in earnest, and my intelligence saved me. My anger transformed into a desire for knowledge, and learning became my new weapon. By eighteen, I had won the most coveted university scholarship, and I graduated in three years. But before I began my doctorate, I returned to the bogs and found that the Kachinka who had begun my training was still alive. I finished my apprenticeship with her, but upon returning to the city, I was arrested and returned to the rehabilitation camp. I suppose I am a stubborn woman. I was not declared officially rehabilitated and allowed to resume my studies until I was almost 30. Though I was the best in my field, I was denied a university position for six years. I remained under surveillance, but in stolen moments I still managed to return here to the box and to my poor oppressed people. During my years in Inesque, their lives had become so degraded. It seemed as if the government was determined to strip them of every last shred of their dignity, as if they were determined to make the tribal people of the bogs into the slaves of the city and of the tram-tram. I could not bear it, and it was then that the dreams began again. I felt myself drifting over the bogs like a will-o'-the-wisp, flashing on-off, on-off, I came to a hollow where I found a cairn, and I began to dig through the peat. Three feet down, I found the bog king's daughter, queen of the tram-tram and the mistress of the magic of the bog. Millennia of peat had dyed her thick braided hair an orange-red. Her sunken sockets were eyeless, but sealed with parchment lids that still had a fringe of eyelashes. Her lips had shrunk back from her teeth and gums, giving her an eternal grimace. Yet even as I stared, those lips began to move, and her whispered words filled my mind with the blackness of eternity. She told me about the sacrifices, about how they had to be done. She explained the ritual of strangulation and exposure, and about the importance of the yellow wine. So, it was I who brought back the ritual of sacrifice to my people, and our sacrifices make us stronger." I have my own apprentices now, though I make sure they are accepted to the university, so that they understand the enemy as much as they understand the god. Don't bother to try and speak. The paralysis will last for only a few hours, but that will be long enough. My apprentices have known for months that you are an informer, and so have I. I see your lips twitching. How much you must want to deny my accusations and proclaim your own innocence... But it's too late for that, my dear. Much too late. Van Nog is upon us, and the god awaits.
0: the letters back in their envelopes it's time to take our leave for now the musical score was composed by brandon boone our production team is phil Mykolski, jeff clement and jesse cornett our creative content manager is olivia white our editor-in-chief is jessica mcavoy I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious.